Chapter Twenty One of Mr. Scarborough's Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. Mr. Scarborough's Family by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty One. Mr. Scarborough's Thoughts of Himself. When Mr. Scarborough was left alone, he did not go to sleep as he had pretended, but lay there for an hour, thinking of his position and indulging to the full the feelings of anger which he now entertained towards his second son. He had never in truth loved Augustus. Augustus was very like his father in his capacity for organizing deceit, for plotting, and so contriving that his own will should be in opposition to the wills of all those around him, but they were thoroughly unlike in the object to be attained. Mr. Scarborough was not a selfish man. Augustus was selfish and nothing else. Mr. Scarborough hated the law because it was the law and endeavoured to put a restraint upon him and others. Augustus liked the law, unless when in particular points it interfered with his own actions. Mr. Scarborough thought that he could do no better than the law. Augustus wished to do worse. Mr. Scarborough never blushed at what he attempted, unless he failed, which was not often the case. But he was constantly driven to blush for his son. Augustus blushed for nothing and for nobody. When Mr. Scarborough had declared to the attorney that just praise was due to Augustus for the nobility of the sacrifice he was making, Augustus had understood his father accurately and determined to be revenged, not because of the expression of his father's thoughts, but because he had so expressed himself before the attorney. Mr. Scarborough also thought that he was entitled to his revenge. When he had been left alone for an hour, he rung the bell, which was close at his side, and called for Mr. Merton. Where is Mr. Gray? I think he has ordered the wagonette to take him to the station. And where is Augustus? I do not know. And Mr. Jones? I suppose they have gone to the station. Just feel my pulse, Merton. I'm afraid I am very weak. Mr. Merton felt his pulse and shook his head. There isn't a pulse, so to speak. Oh, yes, but it is irregular. If you will exert yourself so violently... That is all very well, but a man has to exert himself sometimes. Let the penalty be what it may. When do you think that Sir William will have to come again? Sir William, when he came, would come with his knife and his advent was always to be feared. It depends very much on yourself, Mr. Scarborough. I don't think he can come very often, but you can make the distance long or short. You should attend to no business. That is absolute rubbish. Nevertheless, it is my duty to say so. Whatever arrangements may be required, they should be made by others. Of course, if you do as you have done this morning, I can suggest some little relief. I can give you some tonic and increase the amount, but I cannot resist the evil which you yourself do yourself. I understand all about it. You will kill yourself if you go on. I don't mean to go on any farther, not as I have done today, but as to giving up business, that is rubbish. I have got my property to manage, and I mean to manage it myself as long as I live. Unfortunately, there have been accidents which make the management a little rough at times. I have had one of the rough moments today, 
but they shall not be repeated. I give you my word for that. But do not talk to me about giving up my business. Now I'll take your tonics, and then would you have the kindness to ask my sister to come to me? Miss Scarborough, who was always in waiting on her brother, was at once in the room. Martha, he said, where is Augustus? I think he has gone out. And where is Mr. Septimus Jones? He is with him, John. The two are always together. You would not mind giving my compliments to Mr. Jones and telling him that his bedroom is wanted. His bedroom wanted? There are lots of bedrooms, and nobody to occupy them. It is a hint that I want him to go. He'd understand that. Would it not be better to tell Augustus? asked the lady, doubting much her power to carry out the instructions given to her. He would tell Augustus. It is not, you see, any objection I have to Mr. Jones. I have not the pleasure of his acquaintance. He is a most agreeable young man, I'm sure, but I do not care to entertain an agreeable young man without having a word to say on the subject. Augustus does not think it worth his while even to speak to me about him. Of course, when I am gone, in a month or so, perhaps a week or two, he can do as he pleases. Don't, John. But it is so. While I live, I am master, at least of this house. I cannot see Mr. Jones, and I do not wish to have another quarrel with Augustus. Mr. Merton says that every time I get angry, it gives Sir William another chance with the knife. I thought that perhaps you could do it. Then Miss Scarborough promised that she would do it, and having her brother's health very much at heart, she did do it. Augustus stood smiling while the message was, in fact, conveyed to him. But he made no answer. When the lady had done, he bobbed his head to signify that he acknowledged the receipt of it, and the lady retired. I have got my walking papers, he said to Septimus Jones, ten minutes afterward. I don't know what you mean. Don't you? Then you must be very thick-headed. My father has sent me word that you are to be turned out. Of course, he means it for me. He does not wish to give me the power of saying that he has sent me away from the house. Me, whom he has so long endeavoured to rob. Me, to whom he owes so much for taking no steps to punish his fraud. And he knows that I can take none, because he is on his deathbed. But you couldn't, could you, if he were, were anywhere else? Couldn't I? That's all you know about it. Understand, however, that I shall start to-morrow morning, and unless you like to remain here on a visit to him, you had better go with me. Mr. Jones signified his compliance with the hint, and so Miss Scarborough had done her work. Mr. Scarborough, when thus left alone, spent his time chiefly in thinking of the condition of his sons. His eldest son, Mountjoy, who had even been his favourite, whom, as a little boy, he had spoiled by every means in his power, was a ruined man. His debt had all been paid except the monies due to the money-lenders. But he was not the less a ruined man. Where he was at the moment his father did not know. All the world knew the injustice of which he had been guilty on his boy's behalf. And all the world knew the failure of the endeavour. And now he had made a great and successful effort to give back to his legitimate heir all the property. But in return the second son only desired his death, and almost told him so to his face. He had been proud of Augustus as a lad, but he had never loved him as he had loved Mountjoy. Now he knew 
that he and augustus must henceforth be enemies never for a moment did he think of giving up his power over the estate as long as the estate should still be his though it should be but for a month though it should be but for a week he would hold his own such was the nature of the man and when he swallowed mr merton's tonic he did so more with the idea of keeping the property out of his son's hands than of preserving his own life according to his view he had done very much for augustus and this was the return which he received and in truth he had done much for augustus for years past it had been his object to leave to his second son as much as he would come to his first he had continued to put money by for him instead of spending his income on himself of this mr grey had known much but had said nothing when he was speaking those severe words with mr scarborough had always contrived to receive with laughter but he had felt their injustice though he had himself ridiculed the idea of law there had been two sons both born from the same mother and he had willed that they should be both rich men living among the foremost of their fellow-men and the circumstances of the property would have helped him the income from year to year went on increasing the water-mills of tretton and the town of tretton had grown and been expanded within his domain and the management of the sales in mr grey's hands had been judicious the revenues were double now what they had been when mr scarborough first inherited it it was all no doubt entails but for twenty years he had enjoyed the power of accumulating a sum of money for his second son's sake or would have enjoyed it had not the accumulation been taken from him to pay mountjoy's debt it was in vain that he attempted to make mountjoy responsible for the money mountjoy's debt and irregularities and gambling went on till mr scarborough found himself bound to dethrone the illegitimate son and to place the legitimate in his proper position in doing the deed he had not suffered much though the circumstances which had led to the doing of it had been full of pain there had been an actual pleasure to him in thus showing himself to be the superior to the conventionalities of the world there was augustus still ready to occupy the position of which he had in truth been born and at the moment mountjoy had gone he knew not where there had been gambling debts which coming as they did after many others he had refused to pay he himself was dying at the moment as he thought it would be better for him to take up with augustus mountjoy he must leave to his fate for such a son so reckless so incurable so hopeless it was impossible that anything farther should be done he would at least enjoy the power of leaving those wretched creditors without their money there would be some triumph some consolation in that so he had done and now his heir turned against him it was very bitter to him as he lay thinking of it all he was a man who was from his constitution and heart capable of making great sacrifices for those he loved he had a most thorough contempt for the characters of an honest man he did not believe in honesty but only in mock honesty and yet he would speak of an honest man with admiration meaning something altogether different from the honesty of which men ordinarily spoke the usual honesty of the world was with him all pretence or if not assumed for the sake of the character it would achieve mr grey he knew to be honest mr grey's word he knew to be true but he fancied that mr grey had adopted this absurd mode of living with the view of cheating his neighbours 
by appearing to be better than others. All virtue and all vice were compromised by him in the words good nature and ill nature. All church-going propensities, and these propensities in his estimates extended very widely, he scorned from the very bottom of his heart that one set of words should be deemed more wicked than another, as in regards to swearing, was to him a sign of either hypocrisy or idolatry, or of feminine wickedness of intellect. To women he allowed the privilege of being, in regard to thought, only something better than dogs. When his sister Martha shuddered at some exclamation from his mouth, he would say to himself simply that she was a woman, not an idiot or a hypocrite. Of women, old and young, he had been very fond, and in his manner to them very tender. But when a woman rose to a way of thinking akin to his own, she was no longer a woman to his senses. Against such a one his taste revolted. She sunk to the level of a man contaminated by petticoats, and law was hardly less absurd to him than religion. It consisted of a perplexed entanglement of rules got together so that a few might live in comfort at the expense of the many. Robbery, if you could get to the bottom of it, was bad, as was all violence, but taxation was robbery, rent was robbery, price fixed according to the desire of the seller and not in obedience to justice were robbery. Then you are the greatest of robbers, his friends would say to him. He would admit it, allowing that in such a state of society he was not prepared to go out and live naked in the streets if he could help it. But he had delighted to get the better of the law, and triumphed in his own inequities, as he had seen by his conduct in reference to his sons. In this way he lived, and was kind to many people, having a generous and an open mind. But he was a man who could hate with a bitter hatred and he hated most those suspected by him of means of dirty conduct. Mr. Gray, who constantly told him to his face that he was a rascal, he did not hate at all. Thinking Mr. Gray to be in some respects idiotic, he respected him, and almost loved him. He thoroughly believed Mr. Gray, thinking him to be an ass for telling so much truth unnecessarily, and he had loved his son Mountjoy in spite of all his inequities and had fostered him till it was impossible to foster him any longer. Then he had endeavoured to love Augustus, and did not in the least love him the less because his son told him frequently of the wicked things he had done. He did not object to be told of his wickedness, even by his son, but Augustus suspected him of other things than those of which he accused him, and attempted to be sharp with him, and to get the better of him at his own game and his son laughed at him, and scorned him, and regarded him as one who was troublesome only for a time, and who needed not to be treated with much attention, because he was there only for a time. Therefore he hated Augustus, but Augustus was his heir, and he knew that he must die soon. But for how long could he live? And what could he yet do before he died? A braver man than Mr. Scarborough never lived, that is, one who less feared to die. Whether that is true courage may be a question, but it was his, in conjunction with the courage of another description. He did not fear to die, nor did he fear to live, but what he did fear was to fail before he died, not to go out with the conviction that he was vanishing amid the glory of success, 
was to him to be wretched at the last moment, and to be wretched at the last moment, or to anticipate that he should be so, was to him, even so near his last hours, the acme of misery. How much of his life was left to him, so that he might recover something of success? Or was any moment left to him? He could not sleep, so he rung the bell, and again sent for Mr. Merton. I have taken what you told me. So best, said Mr. Merton, for he did not always feel assured that this strange patient would take what he had been ordered. And I have tried to sleep. That will come after a while. You would not naturally sleep just after the tonic. And I have been thinking of what you said about business. There is one thing I must do, and then I can remain quiet for a fortnight, unless I should be called upon to disturb my rest by dying. We will hope not. That may go as it pleases, said the sick man. I want you now to write a letter for me to Mr. Gray. Mr. Merton had undertaken to perform the duty of secretary as well as doctor, and had thought in this way to be obtained some authority over his patient for the patient's own good. But he had found already that no authority had come to him. He now sat down at the table, close to the bedside, and prepared to write in accordance with Mr. Scarborough's dictation. I think that Mr. Gray, the lawyer, you know, is a good man. The world, as far as I hear it, says that he is honest. I don't care a straw what the world says. The world says that I am dishonest, but I am not. Merton could only shrug his shoulders. I don't say that because I want to change your opinion. I don't care what you think. But I tell you a fact. I doubt whether Mr. Gray is so absolutely honest as I am. But, as things go, he is a good man. Certainly. But the world, I suppose, says that my son Augustus is honest. Well, yes, I suppose so. If you have looked into him, and have seen the contrary, I respect your intelligence. I did not mean anything particular. I dare say not, and if so, I mean nothing particular as to your intelligence. He at any rate, is a scoundrel. Mountjoy, you know Mountjoy? Never saw him in my life. I don't think he is a scoundrel, not all round. He has gambled when he has not had money to pay. That is bad, and he has promised when he wanted money, and broken his word as soon as he has got it, which is bad also. And he has thought himself to be a fine fellow, because he has been intimate with lords and dukes, which is very bad. He had never cared whether he had paid his tailor. I do not mean that he's merely gotten into debt, which a young man such as he cannot help, but he has not cared whether his breeches were his or another man's. That too is bad. Though he has been passionately fond of women, it has only been for himself, not for the women, which is very bad. There is an immense deal to be altered before he can go to heaven. I hope the changes may come before it's too late, said Merton. These changes don't come very suddenly, you know. But there is some chance for Mountjoy. I don't think that there is any for Augustus. Here he paused, but Merton did not feel disposed to make any remark. You don't happen to know a young man of the name of Ainsley, Harry Ainsley. I have heard his name from your son. From Augustus? Then you didn't hear any good of him, I'm sure. You have heard all the row about poor Mountjoy's disappearance. I heard that he did disappear. After a quarrel with that Ainsley? After some quarrel, I did not notice the name at the time. 
Harry Ainsley was the name. Now Augustus says that Harry Ainsley was the last person who saw Mountjoy before his disappearance, the last who knew him. He implied thereby that Ainsley was a conscious or unconscious cause of his disappearance. Well, yes. Certainly it is so, and as it has been thought by the police and by other fools that Mountjoy was murdered, that his disappearance was occasioned by his death, either by murder or suicide. It follows that Ainsley must have had something to do with it. That is the inference, is it not? I should suppose so, said Merton. That is manifestly the inference which Augustus draws. To hear him speak to me about it, you would suppose that he suspected Ainsley of having killed Mountjoy. Not that, I hope. Something of the sort. He has intended it to be believed that Ainsley, for his own purposes, has caused Mountjoy to be made away with. He has endeavoured to fill the police with that idea. A policeman generally is the biggest fool that London or England or the world produces, and has been selected on that account. Therefore the police have a beautiful, mysterious, but altogether ignorant suspicion as to Ainsley. That is the doing of Augustus, for some purpose of his own. Now let me tell you that Augustus saw Mountjoy after Ainsley had seen him, that he knows this to be the case, and that it was Augustus who contrived Mountjoy's disappearance. Now what do you think of Augustus? This was a question which Merton did not find it very easy to answer, but Mr. Scarborough waited for a reply. Ah, uh, he exclaimed, I had rather not given an opinion on a point so raised. You may, of course you understand that I intend to assert that Augustus is the greatest blackguard you ever knew. If you have anything to say in his favour, you can say it, only that you may be mistaken. Living down here, you may not know the truth. Just that, but I do know the truth. Augustus is very clever, but there are others as clever as he is. He can pay, but then so can I. That he should want to get Mountjoy out of the way is intelligible. Mountjoy has become disruptible, and had better be out of the way. But why persistently endeavour to throw the blame upon young Ainsley? That surprises me. Only I do not care much about it. I hear now for the first time that he has ruined young Ainsley, and that appears to be very horrible. But why does he want to pay eighty thousand pounds to those creditors? that i should wish to do so out of a property which must in a very short time become his would be intelligible i may be supposed to have some affection for mountjoy and after all i am not called upon to pay the money out of my own pocket do you understand it not in the least said merton who did not indeed very much care about it nor do i only this that if he could pay these men and deprive them of all the power of obtaining further payment let who would have the property they, at any rate, would be quiet. Augustus is now my oldest son. Perhaps he thinks he might not remain so. If I were out of the way, and these creditors were paid, he thinks that poor Mountjoy wouldn't have a chance. He shall pay this eighty thousand pounds. Mountjoy hasn't a chance, as it is. But Augustus shall pay the penalty. Then he threw himself back on the bed, and Mr. Merton begged him to spare him the trouble of the letter for the present. But in a few minutes, he was again on his elbow, and took some further medicine. I'm a great ass, he said, to help Augustus in playing his game. If I were to go off at once, he would be the happiest fellow left alive. But come, let us begin. Then he dictated the letter as follows. Dear Mr. Gray, I have been thinking much of what passed between us the other day. Augustus seems to be in a great hurry as to paying the creditors, 
and I do not see why he should be so gratified, as the money may now be forthcoming. I presume that the sales, which will be complete before Christmas, will nearly enable us to stop their mouths. I can understand that Mountjoy should be induced to join with me and Augustus, so that in disposing of so large a sum of money the authority of all may be given, both of myself and of the heir, and also of him who a short time since was supposed to be the heir. I think that you may possibly find Mountjoy's address by applying to Augustus, who is always clever in such matters. But you will have to be certain that you obtain all the bonds. If you can get Tyrrett to help you, you will be able to be sure of doing so. The matter to him is one of vital importance, as his sum is so much the largest. Of course, he will open his mouth very wide, but when he finds that he can get his principal and nothing more, I think that he will help you. I am afraid that I must ask you to put yourself in correspondence with Augustus. That he is an insolent scoundrel, I will admit, but cannot very well complete this affair without him. I fancy that he now feels it to be his interest to get it all done before I die, as the men will be clamorous with their bonds as soon as the breath is out of my body. Yours sincerely, John Scarborough. That will do, he said, when the letter was finished. But when Mr. Merton turned to leave the room, Mr. Scarborough detained him. Upon the whole, I am not dissatisfied with my life, he said. I don't know that you have occasion, rejoined Mr. Merton. In this he absolutely lied, for according to his thinking, there was very much in the affairs of Mr. Scarborough's life which he ought to have induced regret. He knew the whole story of the birth of the elder son, and the subsequent marriage of Mr. Scarborough's fraudulent deceit, which had lasted so many years, and of his later return to the truth, so as to save the property, and to give back the younger son all of which, for so many years, he, his father, had attempted to rob him. All London had talked of the affair, and all London had declared that so wicked and dishonest an old gentleman had never lived. And now he had returned to the truth simply with the view of cheating the creditors and keeping the estate in the family. He was manifestly an old gentleman, who ought to be, above all others, dissatisfied with his own life. But Mr. Merton, when the assertion was made to him, knew not what other answer to make. I really do not think I have, nor do I know one to whom heaven, with all its bliss, will be more readily accorded. What have I done for myself? I don't quite know what you have done all your life. I was born a rich man, and then I married. Not rich as I am now, but with ample means for marrying. After Mr. Mountjoy's birth, said Merton, who could not pretend to be ignorant of the circumstance. Well, yes, I have my own idea about marriage and that kind of thing which are, perhaps, at variance with yours. Whereupon Merton bowed. I had the best wife in the world, who entirely conceded with me in all that I did. I lived entirely abroad, and made most liberal allowances to all the agricultural tenants. I rebuilt all the cottages. Go and look at them. I let any man shoot his own game, till Mountjoy came up in the world, and took the shooting into his own hands. When the people at the pottery began to build, I assisted them in every way in the world. I offered to keep a school at my own expense, solely on the understanding that what they called dissenters should be allowed to come there. The parson spread abroad a rumour that I was an atheist, and consequently the school was kept for the dissenters only. The school board had come and made that all right, though the parson goes on with his rumour. If he understood me as well as I understood him, he would know that he is more of an atheist than I am. 
I gave my boys the best education, spending on them more than double what is done by men with twice my means. My tastes were simple, and were not specially vicious. I do not know that I have ever made anyone unhappy. Then the estate became richer, but Mountjoy grew more and more expensive. I began to find that with all my economies the estate could not keep pace with him, so as to allow me to put by anything for Augustus. Then I had to rethink myself what I had done to save the estate from those rascals. You took peculiar steps. I am a man who does take peculiar steps. Another would have turned his face to the wall in my state of health, and having allowed two dirty Jews, such as Tyrrit and Samuel Hart, to have revelled in the wealth of Tretton. I am not going to allow them to revel. Tyrrit knows me, and Hart will have to know me. They could not keep their hands to themselves till the breath was out of my body. Now I am about to see that each shall have his own shortly, and the estate will still be kept in the family. For Mr. Augustus Scarborough? Yes, alas, yes. But that is not my doing. I do not know that I have cause to be dissatisfied with myself, but I cannot but own that I am unhappy. But I wished you would understand that though a man may break the law, he need not therefore be accounted bad, and though he may have views of his own as to religious matters, he need not be an atheist. I have made efforts on behalf of others, in which I have allowed no outward circumstances to control me. Now I think I do feel sleepy. End of chapter 21